Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have an opportunity to earn continuing education credit for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for more information. My name is Megan Musselman, and our guests are Jessica Nisham and Jenny Kale. In this episode, we will be discussing alternative routes of administration for acute pain management. Welcome, everyone. So to get us started, I'm going to turn it over to Jenny, and I'm going to let her start talking through some clinical scenarios of when an alternate route for analgesic therapy may be needed. Thanks, Megan. And thanks everyone for listening to the podcast today. I think this is an interesting topic because we've all kind of encountered patients who we can't give oral medications to. There's just many, many clinical scenarios where alternate routes are necessary. I would say particularly in the emergency department where patients might present initially too nauseous, too obtunded for various reasons, or they simply just don't have intravenous access yet upon the ED presentation. And we need to give them medications before we can obtain access. Additionally, there's a lot of different disease states that make oral administration really not feasible. And typically we see things like small bowel obstructions, esophagitis, or dysphagia that simply make swallowing not appropriate. So those are just a couple of the few scenarios that come to my mind off the bat. Great. I would have to agree by working in the ED that those are all the things that we have to consider. And usually these are in time critical situations. So just kind of going off that, what makes a medication more suitable for use via these different routes? Yeah, that's a great question. So really, it's based on the pharmacokinetics of the medication, the lipophilicity, and really how rapid the onset is when given via the alternative routes. For example, the subcutaneous route can be employed for the treatment of pain, especially in our palliative care population. And the sub-Q route has really shown relative potency and equivalency to the intravenous route in terms of onset. And so when utilizing these routes, we really have to consider perfusion to the area of administration. For example, in situations where poor perfusion might be an issue, such as your hypovolemic patient or your hypothermic patient, if we're giving our pain medications, the analgesic agent may not be well absorbed, and that might lead to inadequate analgesia or in late side effects due to distribution of the medication really into like a depot effect when the perfusion is improved, hopefully with our resuscitative efforts. And then moving on to medications, medications that have high lipophilicity like fentanyl, and buprenorphine. Those can be given by like the transdermal route, which we'll see the different patches for those. So that really depends on the lipophilicity of the drug. And then when we think about highly fat soluble medications, those can be given via the transmucosal route. And when we talk about the transmucosal route, we're thinking about sublingual, buccal, intranasal, and rectal. And we have to keep in mind that when administering medications via the transmucosal route, we are bypassing the first pass hepatic metabolism. So the onset can be quite rapid. And then medications that typically do undergo extensive hepatic metabolism might now exhibit increased potency. So something to watch out for there. And then moving kind of back to the sublingual route, that's really great for drugs like fentanyl and methadone with very rapid onset. However, more hydrophilic drugs like morphine are poorly absorbed sublingually. And patients who are not able to retain the drug for several minutes until it is absorbed would really not be great candidates for the sublingual 
sublingual route. And then the buccal route is similar to the sublingual route with which drugs are best absorbed. So we think about fentanyl, there's the buccal fentanyl on the market for our cancer patients who have tolerated opioid therapy in the past. But I will say the buccal formulations do tend to be more expensive. So not always an option for all of our patients. And then when we're thinking about rectal, so things like Tylenol and NSAIDs, we can give rectally while opioids can be effective rectally, they are kind of less commonly employed than our Tylenol and NSAIDs. And then we also have to keep in mind that there are certain patient populations who we should not think about giving rectal medications in. And these include our immunosuppressed patients where we're worried about translocation of the bacteria, potentially have pre-existing rectal lesions or have recent colorectal surgery. And then absorption via the nasal mucosa is high. And again, it depends on the lipophilicity and solubility and degree of ionization of the drug. So via the nasal route, medications like fentanyl and ketamine can be given, which Jess will talk about more shortly. But with the nasal route, something we have to think about is the volume of medication because we really shouldn't be atomizing too much volume because then it will be absorbed more in like the pharynx and not in the actual mucosa of the nostril. So those are just some of the considerations in medications that are more successfully delivered via the alternative routes. Jenny, thank you for giving us all those considerations and a lot of food for thought there. Like you'd stated, let's discuss a little bit more about the intranasal administration of opioids. Jessica, what opioids can be given intranasally and what are some considerations specifically for these class of medications? Thanks, Megan. I guess really when you're starting to consider medications given via the intranasal route, you have to first consider the lipophilicity. Similar to what Jenny had already mentioned, those medications with high lipophilicity are our best options because of that high bioavailability. So fentanyl is our main workhorse here. Again, in the emergency department where I work, that is our primary opioid that we're going to be giving via the intranasal route. I don't know, Jenny and Megan, if you want to weigh in on a couple of the others, but that would be the main one. Again, bioavailability is about 70%. So the doses are very similar to what we would see intravenously. So that makes dosing much easier. The concentration allows for that, again, limiting it to less than one mil per nostril when you're giving those doses. And so that would be our primary one. And then you can consider some other, not necessarily opioids, but other medications that you can give via the intranasal route as well. That might just be good adjuncts. So ketamine is another one that was already mentioned. Dexmedetomidine is one that we use. Again, that's more for conscious sedation in our practice. but it does have analgesic properties. So it hasn't specifically been studied via that route, but it could be a good option, again, adjunctively. And then you also have your benzodiazepines for more anxiolytics, but that can also supplement and hopefully reduce the doses of your opioids that you're having to give. Yes, I'm kind of curious. I've never actually heard of dexmedetomidine being given intranasally. What sort of dosing do you do? So dosing is typically between one and two micrograms per kilo here in our PEDS patients. We go towards the higher end of that. So around two micrograms per kilo. And again, the biggest thing with that that you have to be aware of is its onset of action is closer to 20 to 30 minutes. So it is not going to be something great for that immediate effect like you would expect with fentanyl. But it does, again, allow for our patients a lot of times when we're having to do imaging. And so we don't want to have put a ton of opioids on board and then send a patient down to CT and risk the airway compromise. So again, dexmedetomidine is really come into favor for that 
specific indication. And yeah, so we'll use that. We don't use it as frequently in our adult population, but again, if you're struggling with IV access or other things like that, we definitely have considered it. That's really interesting. Do you see any of like the vital sign changes with the intranasal? We haven't, we haven't specifically studied it, but definitely not like you would expect with your IV where you would have a risk for hypotension. Really, it's been pretty neutral in that regard. That's awesome. So to kind of further ask questions on this, we predominantly would probably use benzodiazepines like midazolam and fentanyl and our emergency departments. And we don't commonly use ketamine, either Jenny or Jess. Do you guys commonly use it? And which patient population are you finding it most efficacious? Oftentimes when we use ketamine, it's in our acute agitated patient. And we often use IM route. I would say at MGH, we will typically do ketamine intranasally for like pediatric procedural sedations. I haven't seen it used in the adult population intranasally. Like you said, in the adults, it's usually IM or IV for agitation. Yeah, I've had very similar experience where it's mostly, again, as an adjunct in our pediatric patients, if you're trying to avoid having to start an IV, if it's going to be a quick procedure that will do it intranasally, again, to avoid that needle stick. Very interesting. Thank you guys. Now just a little bit more about ketamine. Let's talk about oral ketamine. I know we use ketamine a lot in the ED and other acute settings, but I don't think many of us in these settings have given it orally. Jenny, how effective is the oral route and does it have a fast onset? Yeah, that's a good question. And I agree. I don't think many individuals are familiar with oral ketamine, especially when used for pain. It is typically used in the outpatient setting for like depression. At MGH, we've recently added it to our sickle cell pathway for individuals who, again, potentially just don't want to get IV access on, or they have reactions to different agents of our opioid classes. But I will say that oral ketamine is currently used off-label to treat pain. And it was really only granted FDA designation as an orphan drug to treat a type of pain that's refractory to other pain treatments. And it's good to know that only about 20 to 25% of orally administered ketamine actually reaches the systemic circulation. We've only used it in about two patients in RED thus far, but it's found that those that benefit most are those with like a history of chronic opioid tolerance, neuropathic pain, and then pain that's refractory to conventional therapies. Or again, they have side effects to other conventional therapies. So it's typically not like a first line agent for pain and more of like an adjunct. It will typically only provide mild pain reduction. And again, that's why it's best as an adjunct in a more of a multimodal analgesic regimen. The typical starting doses are about 25 to 50 milligrams and it's dosed three or four times a day. Or if you're doing more of a weight-based dosing or in your pediatric patients, it would be about 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per dose. And then talking about the onset, the onset is about 10 to 15 minutes with a peak analgesic effect in about 30 minutes. So not super fast acting, but reasonably fast. Great information. Yes, definitely not something I've used in my ED or in our acute care settings, but it it does give you a little idea of where it could be applicable. So now I'm going to switch gears just a little bit, and we're going to just talk about nitrous oxide. This is something that we're currently instituting in our ED, but I know that Jessica has a fair amount of experience in this area. So I wanted to turn it over to her to discuss which patients would this be appropriate for and how to implement it. 
Yeah, thanks, Megan. So we implemented a protocol here about a year ago. Again, primarily it started out with interest in our pediatric population. Again, those patients are ones that we don't necessarily want to have to start IVs in all the time, but they come in for those minor painful procedures that we would need to give some kind of sedation and analgesia for. So that was kind of our initial why we started looking at this as an option. So for those that aren't too familiar, nitrous oxide is a colorless, tasteless, and odorless gas. It's otherwise known as laughing gas. And you oftentimes will see it in dental practices. And so that's where most people are familiar with it. It has also gained more or increasing use in the obstetric population as well. So there's a lot of information out there being used for labor and delivery. And it's now starting to take off more in emergency departments because it has demonstrated good efficacy. And some of those risks from long ago when it was first being implemented into practices have kind of been minimized through better administration techniques. So again, kind of talking about how it works. So its mechanism is multifactorial. So it's a non-competitive NMDA inhibitor. So it reduces the excitatory influence on the nervous system, but then it also binds to opioid receptors in the CNS similar to morphine. So it causes inhibition of the ascending pain pathway. So again, that balance between both being pain and kind of a sedative is very beneficial. It also has a very quick onset of action of only like 30 to 60 seconds, and it is eliminated in unchanged state. So it's not metabolized. So you don't have to worry about potential drug interactions or any of that sort of thing. So again, beneficial in that regard. The patients that we have predominantly used in are those with mild to moderate painful procedures. So you think about things, again, if you need to obtain vascular access in a patient that is agitated or you're struggling just to keep them calm and relaxed while you're doing that, again, a lot of times in our pediatric population, if you're doing a simple lack repair, abscess drainage, and a few other things, wound debridement. Once you get into the more painful things, that's where, again, oftentimes you'll have to use it adjunctively with other medications because it doesn't have the same potency of analgesic effect as your opioids would, but it could be used as an opioid sparing technique. You just have to, again, be more conscious of that respiratory depression and keeping a close eye on the patient's vitals. Again, good use in a lot of different settings, but you do have to also consider the contraindication. So it does come with a fair share of contraindications. The biggest thing is it can cause megaloblastic crisis. So in patients that are with known or at risk of vitamin B12 or folate deficiencies, such as pernicious anemia, Crohn's disease, patients with a very strict vegan diet, you would not want to use it in. And also because of its role with vitamin B12 and folate metabolism, it also isn't recommended during the first trimester of pregnancy. So those are some patients that you would not want to use it in. Also, nitrous oxide has a higher solubility than nitrogen, causing it to diffuse more rapidly into closed air-filled spaces. So things like COPD, if they have a pneumothorax, an ear embolism, head injury, any of those types of things, again, there could be a gas entrapment, and so you would not want to use it in any of those patients. Pulmonary hypertension, and then patients with impaired level of consciousness, a lot of what we're doing is we're trying to treat and titrate to effect. So if the patient's already untunded, it would be hard to to get a good view of how the patient is being administered. So that's a lot of the things about how or which patients would probably be best or to avoid use in. 
Thank you. I had a couple of follow-up questions for you, specifically speaking about those patients that need adjunctive therapy, specifically maybe with a benzodiazepine or opioid. Is that often time that you pre-treat with those or do you evaluate like peri-procedure and determine to add those on? Or how do you guys manage the additional agents when you're using nitrous oxide? So within our institution, we try and start out with just using the nitrous oxide alone. Again, that is considered minor or very mild sedation. So we don't have to do a lot of the additional monitoring and different things that come along with moderate or conscious sedation. So once we start adding on those adjuncts, that's where we at our institution have elected to treat it more as a conscious sedation. So we are doing additional monitoring and we have to have a provider in the room at all times once we either add on adjuncts or if we go above 50% of nitrous oxide. So that's kind of how we have elected to do it just until we get more comfortable and more experienced with it. Jessica, thank you all for that information. I just had one further follow-up question, just a little bit more about the logistics and the administration of nitrous oxide in these patients. Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that you can administer nitrous oxide. I found kind of through research and looking at what other institutions have implemented is that a fixed 50-50 mixture with a demand flow is probably the easiest and most simplistic and safest approach, especially within the emergency department, where again, you have limited staffing and a lot of interruptions. And so that is what I have found to be the preferred method. But again, you can also have continuous flow and then there's titratable as well. The biggest thing to note with that is that you can't go above 70% of nitrous oxide. You have to have that 30% of oxygen along with it so that you don't cause hypoxemia. So that would be the biggest thing. Again, really feeling it out with your providers that would be using this and what they're most comfortable with or the patients that you're intending to use it in. Again, those with more severe pain, it may require higher concentrations of the nitrous oxide. So again, if you wanted to use it in those populations, then you would want to make sure that your equipment allowed for that titration as well. But again, the equipment has become much more sophisticated. And so there are a lot of options out there to help ensure your safety. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you to both of our guests for great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org forward slash podcast. Please note that credit for this podcast expires two years after the date this podcast is published. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe rate or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.